Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Uh, we will let's be respectful of his time. Let's get recording and let's just start chatting and uh, get into some interesting stuff. Cool. We... Now, where, is, where is Zach? Oh, there he is. Okay. Can you guys see me now? <laughs> hey, Zach, I, I hear you're running, you're running 100 miles, huh? Yeah, I like the crazy long stuff. <laughs> in the desert? You're running in the desert, do you? Yeah, I live in Phoenix now, so albeit relatively recently, I moved here in January, but uh, I love desert trails, so uh, it's been fun so far. Yeah, you got to be careful. Everything out there will kill you. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. I, you know, one of the funny things that I learned firsthand is when I lived in the Midwest, when I'd run on trails, if it was like a tight turn, I would like put my hand on a tree. You can't do that with cactus. <laughs> you end up in a rough shape. <laughs> I know, I know. I've been out there many times. <laughs> so, Dr. Seyfried, so for people that don't know uh, your background a little bit, maybe we can just kind of give you a little bit of a chance to talk about that. Uh, you've done some very exciting work uh, around cancer. And one of the things you're kind of bringing up, uh, something that uh, Otto Warburg had talked about in the 19, I believe, 20s, when he, I think he was a Nobel Prize winner when he discovered that cancer preferentially metabolized glucose and you've you've kind of piggybacked on that and and come up with a lot of interesting stuff around there with some really interesting research can you give us a quick little i know i know you've written a huge book on this so telling you condense this stuff into a quick intro might be hard but i'd like to talk a little bit about that and then let's get into some of the details and then i'd also like to talk about your recent trip to hungary i don't know if you know zach uh, dr safer just got back from hungary he was meeting with the uh, folks at the paleo medicina group who we had on the podcast the other day. So it'll be interesting to kind of get this combined perspective. So, uh, Dr. Safer, if you don't mind, just kind of give us a quick little intro on what, what you're up to. Well, um, you know, I'm a professor here at Boston College, and um, we do basic uh, preclinical research in, in cancer, and we also do preclinical research on lipid storage diseases like Tay-Sachs disease. And we've had a very active program for many years in the field of epilepsy. And most of our work involves trying to manage these diseases using metabolic therapies in combination with drugs. So uh, it's kind of a new approach, especially for cancer, um, where, you know, the traditional uh, approach to management, you know, which is uh, chemo, radiation, surgery, and this kind of stuff, has, um, has not had any major impact uh, over the years. So uh, something really has to be done. You, you have to realize that I don't think most people realize it's not discussed almost anywhere that we have over 1,600 people a day in the United States die from cancer. Um, I don't think a lot of people know that. The, these numbers come from the American Cancer Society. And every time they get on to talk about something, they're telling everybody how wonderful the progress is. But then they publish all this information showing all these dead people. 
And um, you say to yourself, you know, what's going on here? So uh, we've made it a mission to see whether or not it's possible to lower the death rate for cancer and uh, by taking a, t a completely different strategy to attack the disease based on its metabolic origin uh, rather than the, um, uh, the downstream epiphenomenal changes called gene mutations. Um, we've shown and others have shown that these mutations are not the cause of cancer, they're the effects. So if they're the effects, then most of what's being done today is probably largely irrelevant. I hate to say that. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that is in a, in a, in a, a rabbit hole. Um, consequently, we have 1,600 people a day dying from the disease. And I think people need to know that there are other alternatives that could potentially, potentially increase survival uh, with less toxicity. So that's where we are. That's what we do. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, and, I, and I've kind of read quite a bit about some of the stuff you're up to, and, you know, one of the things we have the somatic, you know, DNA mutation that, that supposedly think, people think that cancer comes from that. And, you know, when we look at these cancer cells, uh, they are so wildly different. Even, even one cell to the next has different mutations. So yeah. it makes it very hard to have this targeted gene therapy that people talk about and try to target the drugs because it just doesn't make sense. And it does make a sense that, it's probably something further upstream that's causing all these different well, mutations. You know, that, that knowledge about, about that has come in large part from the, the cancer genome, um, where we've spent $100 million uh, searching for gene mutations. Um, so, uh, and it's clear that um, you're absolutely right, Sean, that every cell in the tumor is a different genetic composition. And then there's some cells in the tumor that, ha that have no mutations. So uh, um, here's a cell growing out of control with no mutation. How do you explain that? And then you have um, normal skin containing all these so-called driver gene mutations. It's normal skin. So you have normal cells growing out of, out of control with no mutations, and you have normal cells full of driver mutations that don't form cancer. So when you start putting all this together, it makes absolutely no sense. And I think the strongest evidence to date is the uh, nuclear transfer experiments. That's where you take the nucleus of the tumor cell and put it into a normal cytoplasm and you don't get cancer. On the other hand, if you take the, the um, cancer mitochondria and put it into a normal cytoplasm, you, you, get, you get cancer. So, so um, I put those uh, studies together and they're the strongest evidence to date to say that cancer cannot be a genetic disease. So once you make that decision, once, once that statement becomes known and appreciated, it becomes clear that the majority of what we're doing makes no sense. Is a, is a, is, I don't want to say it's a complete waste of time, but I would certainly say time and energy could be spent better uh, looking at the real origin, which is a metabolic problem. What, you know, I know you've pointed to it, and I know you've called it a mitochondrial metabolic disease in the, in the past, and... Why do you think that it's the mitochondria? We're, you know, I know the mitochondrial transfer uh, data would, would, would certainly point to that. Is there any other thing else going on? And why do we think that mitochondria, what's happening to the mitochondria? Can we say well, what's going on? Well, you know, our cells are all regulated energetically. I mean, every cell in our body has a, has a very disciplined energy to, do, to perform its, its vital functions. You know, liver cells perform a particular function, brain cells, colon cells, breast cells. They all do it. And that's all energetically regulated and gene controlled in, inside the cell. But ATP, energy, is the prime, prime um, uh, driver of everything that we do. 
Now, most of the energy comes from respiration. We breathe in oxygen and the cells make energy in a very disciplined and coordinated way. Well, that organelle that makes that energy becomes corrupted in cancer. And that can be corrupted from carcinogens, radiation, hypoxia, um, you know, uh, viruses, um, even inherited gene mutations. Uh, but those inherited gene mutations only cause cancer if they damage the respiration. So you take BRCA1, for example, um, that you hear a lot about, and P53. Those gene-inherited mutations only cause cancer only if they damage the respiration. So you have people walking around with those mutations who don't have cancer. They're what they call non-penetrant because for whatever reason, the mutation in that person did not damage the mitochondria in a particular cell. So everything goes through the mitochondria. Without, There is no cancer that we know of that has normal respiratory function. That's a fact. So, uh, so clearly, uh, damaging the respiration, followed by, as Warburg said, a compensatory fermentation. Because if the mitochondria become damaged, the cell dies. But if the mitochondria are chronically damaged over a period of time, the cell adapts, upregulates fermentation, and stays alive. The problem is there's a complete dysregulation of energy, and the cell morphs back into a very primitive kind of existence, uh, being driven by ancient pathways of fermentation. And they use glucose and glutamine as the prime fuels for driving the disease. So the strategy then becomes a relatively simple one deprive this cancer cell of glucose and glutamine, and it cannot make ATP and cannot make energy and therefore dies. And the rest of the cells are burning ketone bodies and they survive while the cancer cell starves. That was one of the questions that I kind of had for you too. And because I think like when when our listeners like tune into this, this podcast, I think there'll be a question on the top of their heads as well is a lot of the the talk within like, I guess the ketogenic community or the health nutrition community has been like the efficacy of a ketogenic diet or a um, low to zero carb approach in order to kind of starve off these, these cancer cells or I guess more or less um, stop this tumor growth. And um, as that stuff has gotten, I guess, a little more out in the open, there's discussion about, well, that's that's good for certain types of cancer, but maybe not all of them. There's some kinds that can actually, uh, I guess, use use fat or um, other 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 areas instead of sugar and, and still grow. Is that something that is um, is that something that's still worth exploring or looking into more? Or what are the kind of the I guess the most update current findings with that type of stuff? Well, most of that's based on, on cells growing in culture. So uh, most of that kind of evidence. And um, so let's, let's dissect uh, what, you, what you just said, because some parts of it are true and some parts of it are, are not, not accurate. So um, can some cancers grow without sugar? And the answer is yes. Okay. And they're, and they're burning glutamine. They're fermenting an amino acid. They're, they're, so if you take away all the glucose, these cancer cells are still there. They may not be growing quite as fast, but they're still there and they are still growing. And they are using glutamine as the fuel, okay? So you can only half starve them if you try to take away glucose. There's other cancer cells that use predominantly glucose. And when you use ketogenic diets or, or, or uh, glucose lowering strategies, you will kill the majority of those kinds of cells, right? Mm -hmm. And then there are many cancer cells that use both glucose and glutamine. So in order to kill the beast, you have to take away its two primary fuels. If you take away just glutamine and not glucose, you, the, the cell is gonna survive on the glucose. 
you know, it's vice versa. So you, you got to get both of those fuels together. The reports that cancer can use fatty acids or ketone bodies would only depend on having a cancer cell with a normal mitochondrial restoration. All right. You need normal mitochondria to burn fats and ketone bodies. And as I said, we have never found a cancer cell that is a completely normal restoration. So if we're giving fats to and uh, to someone and and and, ca and cancer cell in culture, which is a completely um, um, un unnatural environment, our cancer cells don't exist in a in a petri dish. They exist in our body. All right. So if I give a lot of fat to a cancer cell growing in a petri dish, all of a sudden you see it start growing faster, and you say, oh, the cancer cell is using fats to grow. What is known is the fats un, uh, even further uncouple mitochondrial respiration, forcing them to use more glucose and glutamine. So it's not the fat that's causing them to grow faster. It's the glucose and glutamine induced by the fat. They can't burn fat. They can't burn ketones. So they have to burn either glucose and glutamine. So it all comes back to mitochondrial function. So, um, so that's the mis misunderstanding that a lot of people have. A lot of the things you hear about are coming from cell growing in culture. Because let's be honest, if fats made cancer cells grow faster than anyone with cancer taking a ketogenic diet should have that cancer blow through the roof. They should be dead very quickly. That never happens. So, um, so how do you explain that? Well, these people are eating fat and their tumors are getting smaller. Well, where the hell is the evidence that the fat is making the tumor grow faster? Makes no sense. So what happens is you have to dis disassociate stuff. Is that evidence coming from cell culture work or is that evidence coming from animal studies or human, human studies? And then you have to make the decision based based on that. But it is true that people taking ketogenic diets in all likelihood probably could not cure their cancer. Now, it doesn't mean they can't live longer, but it's unlikely. I have not seen um, a, a, a diet strategy cure cancer. Now, I'm not saying I have. I, I just I think there are people out there that might have been so fortunate to have that happen to them. But um, without targeting that glutamine, in my mind, it's going to be very hard to completely resolve the disease. This is, although I have to be honest with you, I've seen some rather spectacular responses to this, more, more so than I've ever uh, could imagine. And I sometimes say, I don't know how the hell it's happened. But, because uh, I've never seen that in our preclinical systems. We have never cured a mouse using meta cancer, uh, using ketogenic diets, ever. Now we slow it down, the mice lives longer, but we've never cured. And, and um, uh, because we're not targeting glutamine. I think the future will be when you target both of these, we might, we might have a, pot a potential to resolve the disease. Let me just shift a little bit gears. I know you talked about some primitive metabolism. There's another primitive uh, cellular process that a lot of people talk about with regard to the etiology of cancer, and that's something called mTOR. Can you comment on that a little bit as people are calling that as a prime driver of cancer, and how does that sort of uh, line up with what you're saying, or, or does it not line up with what you're saying with regard to the mitochondria? I mean, there's a lot of people who love to study cancer, and you have HIF-1-alpha, you have AKT signal, you have mTOR, you have all these. These are, in, these are internal signaling cascades within the cell. They're all dependent on glucose and glutamine, all right? Uh, mTOR is driven by both glucose and glutamine. So if I take glucose and glutamine away and the cell dies, why do we care about mTOR? <laughs> Very simple. <laughs> this is the whole thing. People don't realize that the cell needs ATP. Without energy, the cell dies. mTOR, HIF-1-alpha, AKT, all of that becomes irrelevant when the cell is dead. Right? We don't have to worry about mTOR when the cell is dead. 
Let me ask you a question because, uh, well, I guess two points. Um, one would be, you know, there's people who say, well, you know, what if I don't have cancer yet? You know, what am I going to do to prevent that? Does mTOR, you know, or, or some of these other cellular cascade mechanisms lead to that? And how do I do it? Because I think prevention, obviously, the better the better answer is don't get cancer in the first place. I think that okay. I think we can all agree upon that. And then talk a little bit about glutamine. How do we how do we get around yeah. glutamine? What, what, what can we do well, to, to again, mitigate I, that? I agree with you 100 percent. You know, it's so easy. You know, if we all knew how to prevent cancer, we wouldn't have 1600 people a day dying from it. I mean, what are we going to tell the, the the families of the six every day, 16? Well, he should have done something different to prevent him from getting that cancer in the first place. You know, is it his fault that he did something to give him the cancer? No. You know, we live in a toxic environment, man. You know, we've got toxins coming through the water, through the air. You know, we have foods that have been genetically engineered. Uh, we have all kinds of shit that's coming into our bodies that we really don't have much control over. And that's putting us at risk. Now, of course, as I said, the only way to get cancer is if you have damaged respiration. So there's the key. Okay, so how do I protect my respiration? Yes, running 100 miles in the desert uh, on ketosis will pr probably protect you from cancer. <laughs> I knew I was doing it for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your mitochondria are going to be humming. Um, so, uh, yeah, so how do you... I, ketogenic diets lower blood sugar and elevate ketones. And I... And when you know how a ketone body enhances mitochondrial respiration, it reduces reactive oxygen species. And reactive oxygen species ultimately damage the efficiency of energy metabolism and leads to aging. So um, entropy, which is the second law of thermodynamics, is essentially disorder, all right? No one lives forever. That's a fact. There's nobody around that lives forever. All right, why do they die? They die because they undergo entropy, which is disorder. What by keeping your mitochondria healthy, all you do is delay the inevitable. You delay entropy, you delay disorder. Cancer arises in certain cells from an accelerated entropy that happens when the mitochondria become damaged. So anything that you can do to keep your mitochondria healthy will delay entropy and reduce your risk for cancer. Not only for cancer, but for probably for type two diabetes, uh, various cardiovascular disease and a lot of other so-called chronic diseases. So you live longer simply because you have in engaged in a diet and lifestyle that delays entropy. But we know in our life, people like to party, people like to have a good time. They want to have a few beers. They want to have a wine or smoke a cigar, you know, and all of these things will put you at risk for entropy. But if you have an, an alternative lifestyle, you can say, okay, now I'm going to go out and run 100 miles in the desert and see whether or not I can reverse some of the damage from the party I just had. Or you can reduce your, you can do periodic fasting, you know, to uh, 18, 20 hours a day, no food. Let your body try to recover. Do the exercise. You know, you're a young guy, man. You can run 100 miles. But, you know, talk about 65, 75-year-old people. They're gonna, they do what you do. They'll be dead out in the trail somewhere. <laughs> you know, you, you, can't, you can't do that. So, and your risk for cancer becomes more and more probable the older you get all right the older you get the cancer probability so the the, the 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 prevention then becomes a knowledge part if you know how to prevent the disease then it becomes up to you as an individual to determine whether or not you want to engage in certain lifestyles that will reduce entropy and reduce your risk for cancer 
Yeah, you know, I think it's it's interesting because when you think about when, you know, I think everyone has a story of like a relative or a friend who was just like really active well into their older days. And uh, I know like for me specifically, I've, I've known some older folks who really active people moving around a ton and then they get hurt doing something which causes them to have to be very, very sedentary. And it's almost like their aging process accelerates in their they end up, uh, you know, dying shortly thereafter or having a really hard time kind of getting back to that lifestyle they had right before the injury. Um, and I think like that kind of just highlights what you said is like, you know, kind of keeping the body active, moving and, you know, doing some of those preventative things is so important. And especially as you get into the older ages when, you know, if you do get hurt or if something does happen that keeps you from being able to kind of do those preventative things, it's just a lot more likely that it's going to catch up to you than when you're you know, younger and able to kind of bounce well, back from that. What happens, I, I know for a fact what happens, because I work out every day in the Plex with the professors and students and everything, and um, everybody thinks they're at, at 50 or 60, you can do what you're doing at, uh, at 25 and 30. And what happens is you start, your, your body breaks down, it's just aging, right? So all of a sudden, you're absolutely right. You're, you're, uh, you get a bad knee, uh, you tear something in your knee, and that you can't run with that, and you become less active. But you have to know how to downgrade your level of exercise as you get older. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself, even though you're running 100 miles in the desert now, if you're still running 100 miles in the desert at 65, then that, that's uh, quite uh, commendable. Um, but we'll see what happens. You've you got a long way to go. But, but the issue is, is that you've got to degrade or slowly back off the intensity so you don't end up sedentary somewhere. Now, uh, we've done a remarkable job in, in the area of uh, orthopedic surgery and these kinds of things. So um, people can still get be mobile with hip replacements and knee replacements and this kind of thing. Um, at least it keeps them mobile. I'm not going to say you can run all this, this way. But you're absolutely right. So the key, what you're saying is now this exercise, I think, is an important component for reducing risk. We can't say exercise prevents cancer. All we can say is that exercise reduces risk for cancer. That's, that's uh, one of the things. Just like an appropriate diet will reduce risk for cancer. But does it eliminate all possible? No. And sometimes we can't explain why people get cancer. And then we have to go into the therapeutic option, which is how do we treat it once a person has it? Yeah, I, I will, I'll just kind of sort of reinforce a little bit what you said. I think those all things kind of go back into each other's diet and, and, and exercise and lifestyle and recovery and all those things sort of interplay. And I, and I look at, uh, you know, if we just look into the wild and we see which animals get picked off by the predators, it's the slow, weak ones. So yeah. once you once you become a slow, weak human, you don't get picked off by the lion, but you get picked off by the chronic disease. And I think it's the same sort of analogy. So you want to maintain as much function as you possibly can, and whether it's through exercise, diet, and other strategies, those are important. Talk to us about uh, how do we mitigate glutamate, though? I mean, or glutamine yeah, rather. How do we? How do we? How do we get around that one? Because that that seems like you know the glucose is you know you can kind of you can restrict that pretty easily, but the glutamine I think is something a little more yeah. challenging. No, you're absolutely 100 percent right, Sean. This is the challenge, um, but it's it's a challenge that uh we we as uh, as um once once people understand the role of glutamine and know the biology of glutamine i i think um there will be very effective strategies for managing this you can't do it i at least i have no knowledge about how you can do it through a dietary uh a dietary change glutamine is made it's not as they call it a non-essential amino acid because we can make glutamine from from glucose and things and um 
but it's almost it's an essential amino acid because it's so important for all these physiological processes in our body it's pl- it plays a massive role in the in the urea cycle getting rid of urine making urine it plays a huge role in uh, the function of our immune cells all right to fight bacteria and infection so they need glutamine <laughs> the cells of our immune system need glutamine so and this is the, this is the, the 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 interesting thing the metastatic cell the cell that spreads through our body is in fact the most powerful immune system cell in our body. It's a macrophage, one of these kinds of leukocytes, these white blood cells. And it is the most powerful cell in our body. It's designed to kill bacteria and protect us from wounding and all this kind of stuff. That's the cell that becomes corrupted and spreads through our body. That cell can live in hypoxic environments. Consequently, anti-angiogenic therapies don't work, and that's been proven. So. What do we know about that cell? That cell is a glutamine hog. It sucks down glutamine. But our normal cells also take in glutamine. So we have to have normal immune cells to fight the cancer, but the cancer is itself an immune cell. So here's the situation. And they're both taking in glutamine. So if we target glutamine, we will kill cancer cells, but we will also potentially harm the cells of our normal immune system. So our strategy is now is we attack glutamine with a drug while the patient and while the, the, the preclinical system is under um, low glucose, high ketones. Low glucose, in other words, the individual is in therapeutic ketosis first, puts pressure on the tumor cell so they can't grow. Then we hit them with drugs that target glutamine, but only briefly. So you can slaughter a large number of cancer cells relatively quickly. Our normal immune cells get paralyzed, so they, they don't die but they're stunned. So what we have then is a massive number of dead cancer cells and abnormal immune cells that, that can't completely function correctly. So then what we think is what we're gonna do is throw back a lot of glutamine back into the system that will re, re, re-fire up our normal immune cells to come in, pick up the dead bodies from the cancer cells, and once they complete that a short period of time, hit them again with the glutamine drug. So in other words, this is what we call press pulse, and that's the big paper that that I published with Dominic D'Agostino, and I published it with a couple of physicians, Joe Maroon, team surgeon for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and, and uh, uh, Dr. George Yu, a, um, uh, a cancer surgeon also. So we put, all four of us, we published this paper. So the strategy is, if you're right, Sean, you can't just go in like a bull in a china shop on this glutamine issue. You gotta be very strategic when you're doing this, and you gotta know the biology of the system so you don't harm your gut and you don't harm your immune system while you're killing the tumor cells because they all need glutamine together. So if we slaughter 50% of the cancer cells on the first hit with the glutamine and then throw back, the, you're not gonna, re, you're not, those can, dead cancer cells are not gonna come back to life. And the other ones that are there are not gonna grow fast because they're being suppressed by glucose. So as soon as the system cleans itself up, you hit them again with the, and you gradually degrade the tumor slowly over time to the point where we, we have no live, live cancer cells, the patient's normal body health is, is back to normal, and um, they're, they're, then they can rejoin uh, a healthy status. And we've known we can get rid of type 2 diabetes. We can get rid of a lot of these things with the metabolic approach. So patients who have cancer also have a lot of other defects. So we, we take care of all this stuff in one big shot besides getting rid of the tumor. But no one is doing this. I just gave you the hypothetical, which we're experimenting with it in the lab now. Very hard to get money for this stuff. You have to realize that. As I tell everybody, if you want to study mTOR and AKT signaling and all that stuff, you get millions of dollars. 
But when you try to re resolve the damn disease, nobody's interested in that. Nobody's interested in resolution. They're interested in studying the damn disease, but no, nobody wants to, to cure it. They're, oh, we're going to cure, cure, we're going to resolve. No, they're not. They study irrelevant things. It's, millions of dollars are wasted on this. The strategy is clear. Let me ask you, um, so in cell culture, I mean, because if you've done some of the bench work on that, can you can you demonstrate that these cancer cells in the absence of glucose and glutamine all die, or do they somehow figure out another backdoor? Are they sneaky enough to find another source of energy? Or, they, or is it pretty much, if you starve them of both those two things, they're, they're, de they're dead 100% of the time? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good point. We, we discovered this. We, we, that's ex exceptional, exceptional uh, point. And uh, we thought the same thing. So um, we took away all the glucose and glutamine, and of course they die, right? So um, we then put them inside a, um, a, ma a matri gel. It's kind of an extracellular material, um, right? And um, they, they, it's like a gel. It's like a, a viscous gel made from extracellular material. So we put them in the matri gel, and um, it's very interesting. When, when, you, when we put them in the matri gel, the tumor cells in the gel, and we had glucose and glutamine outside the gel in the media, the tumor cells would come flying out of the matri gel and, and they would grow very rapidly. Then we put them in the matri gel and we took away all the glucose and glutamine and the tumor cells didn't die inside the matri gel. Can you believe this? So we saw lactic acid coming out of the, out of the matri gel into the, into the media. Those bastards were, were eating the matri gel and eating each other to stay alive when there was no glucose. So the, when you, when, when you were talking about how they, they start cannibalizing themselves and they get the, the glucose and the glutamine from, the, from eating each other and the matri gel. Can you believe this? So um, this is why we said, okay, if, if those guys, because these are macrophages, you know what the term macrophage, it means big eater, right. all right? So when you starve them of their fuels, they go after and they start cannibalizing other things. So you give them chloroquine. Chloroquine is a beautiful drug. It enters in, because everything has a stomach, right? Internal cell is called lysosome. It's, in, it's the stomach of the cell. So you give them chloroquine, which neutralizes the acidity in their stomach so they can't digest what they just ate. That's when you get them. <laughs> you got to love it, man. You got to love it. <laughs> if you know yeah. the biology of your adversary, you can kill it. If you're still chasing genes around, 1,600 people a day are dying. That's it. That's very interesting stuff. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, if, if, if you, you know, even if you so if you have a metabolic therapy and you can give a drug that they, you know, to restrict the glutamine and then they decide, well, I'm just going to eat the cell next to me instead to stay alive. And then you got to give them chloroquine. So it becomes, it's a challenge. It's I know, a chess match. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a chess match. But eventually, because everything is ATP. Without ATP, they can't survive. Where they get their ATP from? And that's when you find out what kind of a cell does that. Not all cells can do this. So it's the biology of the adversary. And that's why cancer, you got to understand the biology of your adversary. And when you talk to most oncologists, they are clueless about any of the stuff that I just told you. Well, I mean, hopefully, hopefully, you know, like I said, this will get around. I know that uh, there's more and more people that are, uh, you know, out there that have, that have heard you speak, that have heard some of the work coming out. They know Dom D'Agostino. And, and so this stuff is certainly... Uh, you know, becoming in more and more in the con the public collective. And so hopefully we can get some funding for it or something at some point. Let me ask you about your recent trip to Hungary, because you, 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 you visited a previous guest of ours, 
you know, we, we, we talk to them with, with autoimmune disease. They're having pretty good success treating yeah. autoimmune diseases. You know, they think that's based on uh, changes in intestinal permeability yeah. that they're seeing with diet. But they also kind of just touched on the fact that they're, they're dabbling in a little bit in cancer right now. And, and we didn't really draw much into that. Can you maybe, I'm assuming maybe that's why you're there with them. Can you talk about what you guys sort of talked about when you were there? Yeah. Well, I was there for, um, I did see uh, uh, Dr. Clemens and, and Toth and, and another one of their colleagues. I was there to give a keynote lecture to the uh, European Bioenergetic Society, um, uh, which was quite interesting. And at the same time, I did have the opportunity to have lunch with, uh, with, the, uh, with the Hungarian group that's doing this. Yes, they're using paleo keto. Um, I think they have a very, very good uh, program. And I, I want to emphasize that there's no one type of ketogenic diet. I think uh, the kinds they're using, they're calling it paleo keto, where they're using more meats. Um, you know, this is a work in progress. You know, we're on the cutting edge of, of a new field of, of cancer, which is called metabolic therapy. And I think in time, this is going to replace the the, the toxic uh, approaches that we are currently using. But I have to be honest with you, um, we are learning uh, that there are uh, certain flexibilities and certain other ways, strategies to, to better enhance our ability to uh, starve the tumor cell uh, of its necessary fuels. And they're also, they also understand the nature of the glutamine issue. Um, but at the same time, they're getting quite, very good success uh, with the types of paleo keto approaches that they're using. And I have to be honest with you, I, I think they, there is the issue with any of these approaches is compliance. How long can you keep a cancer patient restricted in such a way um, that they can live their normal lifestyle? And I think their strategy, they're keeping people alive longer with, with, with a better quality of life. And they also said, you know, they're not curing everybody. Uh, not, not, not close, but they're certainly keeping people alive in a higher uh, quality of life. And I think that's, that's the major first step. Uh, can you keep people alive longer and a higher quality of life without the toxicity? And they're achieving that. Um, but their patients also die, especially, you know, they're using, they're, where everybody's attacking advanced stage four cancers. I mean, these are, these are horrific things, right? So you're, you know, you're not going to turn around and cure these things overnight. But I, I think, I think their strategy, they use, a, um, they use a group strategy, I think, where, where they bring in a number of people who are all being treated the same way for different cancers, and they have group meetings. So everybody can share the challenges of the compliance issue together and realize and, and can share their feelings. You know, how do you feel? Yeah, I feel pretty good, but I just wish I didn't have to eat this fat and this meat every day. Well, you know, um, they want to go for a piece of bread and they want a beer and and then you, you know, you have to say, well, you can't do that. And, and I think knowledge and shared knowledge in the group is, is going to be extremely important in how we keep these people alive. Now, once we understand the types of drugs that work synergistically with the, with the um, keto uh, uh, metabolic therapy, I think we'll be able to achieve a much greater um, uh, progression-free survival and overall quality of life. So we can eventually enter into what we could possibly discuss is the resolution. In other words, how long will it take to actually resolve this disease? And right now we're still putzing around with dosage timing and scheduling. And that's not yet, um, uh, now this is not, as, the, as they always say, the rocket science. Dosage timing and scheduling 
is certainly achievable. This is not, it's just we need to say what dosage, what time, how long do we do this for, what order should we do this in, and this is what I'm working on right now in the lab. And the reason why people are doing all these ketogenic diets is from the stuff that we initially started. The problem is we're, we're ahead of the crowd because we understand what we really need to do to get to resolution. They're just still proving to themselves that this metabolic therapy actually might have some potential. You know, um, there's two things in my mind that were going to be needed to resolve cancer. Number one is understanding the press pulse concept and how best to schedule dose and time. And number two, not to poison, use poisons and, and radiation to try to cure people. This is an abomination. You're trying to make people healthy by giving them extreme toxic poisons and then irradiating them, right? This is nuts. So um, that's a big stumbling block. Now, that's probably the biggest stumbling block to the eventual resolution. In other words, you're telling the entire field that why are you irradiating and poisoning people to make them healthy? And they'll come back, oh, well, we have to kill the tumor cells. If they don't have glucose and glutamine, they're going to die. That's, if they, they say, well, they'll find a way. What way? You tell me the way they're going to get ATP when you take away all their energy. It's not, it's not possible unless, they, unless they're given a divine intervention by something you know, some hocus pocus. So they can't live without energy. The energy comes from glucose and glutamine. You target glucose and glutamine, these cells are going to be history. But if you're poisoning and irradiating people to make them healthy, all of a sudden you free up massive amounts of glutamine, you cause a big mess inside the body, and these tumor cells can survive on the crap that you've done to the body in the attempt to try to heal it. So, so you got two, two things here. You got to stop this crazy toxic approach and base go to the biology, and then you're going to have your, be your best probability of moving forward to possible resolution. Yeah, there are people today who are surviving cancer. Don't, I mean, I'm not people, oh, what about all these people that are so-called cancer survivors? Listen, their body paid a price for that. There's a new branch of medicine called cancer survivor medicine down here at Dana-Farber, where they bring people in. They have neuropsychiatric problems, digestive problems, cardiovascular problems, hormone problems, all these biological problems for the fact that they've survived being poisoned and irradiated. Okay, now you become a new patient for new kinds of diseases that you never had, but for the fact that you had all the, the treatments, right? This is nuts, absolute nuts, because these people are treating for a disease that they don't have their clueless as the biology of the disease. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, man. You're having people, what I just told you is probably not known by the majority of oncologists treating people every day in this country. 1,600 people a day are dying. Let's talk about, you know, because it's interesting, and, and just in addition to some of the other diseases, they get secondary cancers as well. You know, there, there's radiation-induced cancer yes. that can occur afterwards. So, but what has been, you know, from the numbers standpoint, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm a cancer patient. I go through the traditional therapy, and they're going to, you know, debulk it with a surgery potentially, and then they're going to follow up with chemo and radiation. You know, those all depend on the type of cancers, obviously. But what what can I expect to gain? You know, quality. What are, what do the statistics tell us on you know lifestyle life uh, expectancy gains and stuff like that? Are we gaining much in what's happened over the last you know thirty, forty, fifty years? Depends on the cancer. Yeah, okay, for most uh, lung cancer, brain cancer, you know, pancreatic cancer, uh, triple negative breast cancer is almost zero. All right. As a matter of fact, I just read a paper. You know, we just lost John McCain. Um, Live 12 months, right? Okay, With the, he's the he got the best treatment you could possibly get on the planet. 12 months. There was a paper that just came out of Canada, and they said, okay, in, in, in 1926, they did a survival analysis, Bailey and Cushing, 1926, they published a paper for brain cancer survival was anywhere from 8 to 14 months. 
what is it, almost 100 years ago, we have made, made zero progress in brain cancer? And then they, they, they go to Mayo Clinic like, like Senator McCain went to? I mean, you're not going to advance brain cancer as long as you continue to irradiate the human brain. I told people that. So the poor guys, everybody goes through the same thing. Senator Kennedy from our area, he died of the glioblastoma, right? Nobody survives, 100% death. And they're dying because the damn radiation is killing them as much as the tumor is killing them. So in order to advance the field, you got to avoid the standard of care. Right? Avoid it. Like the plague, don't go there. So you say, well, 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 you're going to be dead in three months. We have a guy, Pablo Kelly, in England. He rejected everything, radiation, surgery, chemo. After a year and a half, oh, you're going to be dead, Pablo. You're going to be dead, everybody says. He's all over the newspapers over there. He said, I'm still alive. His wife just had a baby. He's four years out now. So after two years, he decides to have the tumor taken out of his head. He was shrunken it down with metabolic therapy. Yeah, you had a glioblastoma, Pablo. It's unbelievable you could live two years without surgery and radiation. <laughs> so they took the tumor out, and um, now he's doing fine. He's completely, they don't have any evidence that, he's, that he has the tumor. You know why he's alive? I think. He took metabolic therapy and did not do radiation or chemo. And I think if you can get rid of the radiation and chemo, you're going to live. You have a, I'm not going to say you're going to be cured, but I think your probability of survival will be much greater. Unfortunately, nobody knows this. So you get a person with cancer, the first thing they do is they run off to their local cancer center. MD Anderson, Johns Hopkins, Sloan Kettering, you know, wherever it is, you've got a big Moffitt Cancer Center, Dana-Farber Cancer Center, you name it. You got the angel of death there greeting you as you walk into those places, you know, because the death rate from those, I'm 1,600 people a day are dying. Look at the numbers. It's an epidemic across the world. In China, 8,100 a day are dying. What does that tell us? It tells us we don't know anything what the hell we're doing with this disease. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this. And I can tell you why people are dying, because you have people that don't understand the biology of the disease. I think we can drop the death rate by 50 percent if we got rid of radiation and chemo and did metabolic therapy. So I said, go ahead, do it. Nobody's going to do that. Who's going to pay for the clinical trial to do that? You think about it. What do you think? Novartis is going to step up and say, let's do metabolic therapy when they're making a fortune on immunotherapies? You know, and they, what is immunotherapy? $400,000, you'll live an extra two months. I mean, this is nuts. I mean, this is what you're up against now. You're, you have to see like the way I see it, what I know, right? So you get firewalls everywhere you go to prevent what I'm saying to get done, right? And all we're asking is how, uh, if we do what we do, don't you think we can? Yes, I think we can make people live a lot longer. And I think they're going to have a better quality of life. How many people will be cured? I don't know. How many people are we curing today with this, with all this stuff? You're putting people at risk, people dying all the time. It's an abysmal mess. Okay, this is what, but you know, we're not, when I told you, nobody's talking about. They don't come on the news. Like when with the Vietnam War, every night, how many soldiers we lost in Vietnam? Today we lost 30, 200 this week, 200 that week. Why don't we say how many dead cancer patients we have every week? Then all of a sudden you're going to get people doing something. Right now nobody knows. And the other thing you have is all the cancer societies are separate. Oh, breast cancer is not brain cancer, not colon. They're all like little tribes. It's all the same disease. Meta the metabolism problem is the same in breast, colon. So you bring the tribes together and say, listen, cancer is one singular disease of energy metabolism. March on Washington and say, I want something done. I want something done now. And that's what's going to happen. Other than that, 1,600 people are going to continue to die for as long as I can see the future. So if, um, just to kind of follow up on what you said with us, if, like, if I found out tomorrow that I have cancer and I decided to go into like a cancer, one of the cancer facilities, 
And, you know, they're going to try to put me on the protocol that you kind of described. If I went in there with a, at least some skepticism with radiation, chemo, and said, I don't want that, is there any hope they're going to direct me towards something closer to your protocol? Or am I going to have to just continually, like, ask questions and ask questions and hopefully eventually find that? Or is it getting better, worse, or staying the same in that regard? Well, is- yeah, I think it might start to be changing, but I would say... It's shocking to me, like when you mentioned at the beginning about Otto Warburg, uh, you know, um, and he defined the origin of the disease uh, as, as a metabolic disease. And he, you know, in the, in the 1920s, the 1930s, um, and you go into most oncology clinics today and you ask, do you know, uh, is, your, is your treatment therapy based on Otto Warburg's idea on the origin of the cancer? They're going to say, who's, who's Otto Warburg? So um, that tells you right off the bat that the very people treating you are fundamentally clueless so when you tell them, I don't want radiation and chemo, they're going to say, well, then we won't take you as a patient. You can go out and find someone else that will. And this is an injustice to the patient. I mean, if I were to have cancer myself, knowing all what I know about cancer, I would still like to have a health professional to talk to. Somebody who understood what I understand and tell me that, you know, you might want to tweak it this way or tweak, tweak it that way. Not tell me to go get lost. What we know is your, 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 your approach of radiation, chemo, surgical mutilation, and all this kind of crap is not working for a lot of people. And, 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 if, and the people suffer. Why are we putting, why are we allowing to treat people that bring them close to death? You know, if you want to know, read Mukherjee's book, The Emperor of All Maladies, and you'll see how this nonsense, incense, this absurdity started digging deep, radiating people to the point where they're almost dead. Why? Oh, we have to stop the growth of the cells. What are the, what do the cells need? They, they need ATP to grow. Where are they getting it? They're getting it from glucose and glutamine. Take that away and they die. We've seen it over and over again. Well, how come you don't treat me with glucose and glutamine? Well, there's no evidence for that. You know, we, we haven't seen any evidence for that. You don't read that goddamn literature, for Christ's sake. You know, if you read the literature, you'll understand. You know, it pisses me off. I mean, I, go to, I talk to these jackasses all the time. I don't want to come. I mean, the problem is, is that they... They're doing the best they think they know how to do. They don't read the literature. They don't understand the biology. And then they're going to tell you, we don't think that, that using metabolic therapy is going to help you. Well, you know, and I'm saying to myself, well, what are you doing? If, if you have a brain tumor, what you're doing is definitely going to kill me. So, uh, oh, we're going to keep you alive. What, for three extra months? I can get you double that on metabolic therapy. Just don't do, do the array. Oh, well, yeah. they give you all kinds of shit. You know, I'll tell you, if, if they were so right, why, why are they so resistant? to doing any of this. Isn't their job to try to keep people alive longer? I mean, give me a why should I be the one telling them to do this? You know, or why should, if you had, if I had cancer, I'd be talking to my friends, Miriam Kalamian. I'd be talking, I have a few physician friends and I would be doing metabolic therapy. I would, I would never do any of that crap that they, they would do. Now, what we do don't, we, what we don't argue completely against is surgery. I think surgery can cure cancer, but you've got to get the, you've got to get the tumor shrunken down it's small and then debulk the whole tumor. And the other thing that we need to avoid is punch biopsies to tell you what kind of cancer you have. This is crazy. Put you at risk for metastatic cancer. Why? I'm telling you, you saw my YouTube videos. They have to go in for the breast, the colon, and they take a needle biopsy of your tissue, come out and do a gene screen profile, which is largely irrelevant to what you're going to need to know. You know, who gives a shit about your genes? They're irrelevant. Okay, so they cost you seven thousand dollars to tell somebody to tell you you got you you got a a p fifty three mutation in your cancer cell. All right, take away the glucose, they would die anyway. 
So the, the issue is now you put that patient at risk for spreading the cancer throughout his body through a phenomenon called uh, inflammatory oncotaxis. All right. So a lot of these poor people are put at risk for metastatic cancer by someone wanting to do a gene screen on the tissue that they just took, which is largely irrelevant. Now, you tell me what the craziness of this all is. Right. If people if pe you guys are listening. Right. Can you imagine if everybody in the world that had cancer was listening to what I just <laughs> said? You know what I'm saying? You'd go looking at these guys and say, what the hell is going on here? Now, what they do, of course, is you have a benign cancer and then they, you know, chop it out, give you extra radiation, do all this. And you say, I survived my cancer. And that's true. But if once it spreads through your body, this uh, um, success after metastasis is very low. Long term resolution after metastasis is extremely low. They estimate it somewhere about two to three percent of patients actually survive after metastatic cancer. So you're dealing with it. Now, if it's a benign tumor, let's chunk, take off your breast, you know, smash radiation around, and you say, oh, I survived. But now your body is all, you're missing a breast, your, your body, you're missing part of your colon, you know, you got some body part missing, lung, whatever it is, you know, and, and I'm saying to myself, I don't think you need to do a lot of this stuff. So, um, so again, you're back, you're back to the situation here. How do you understand the biology of the disease so you can best represent uh, a, a more healthy approach? And unfortunately, you know, we're not there yet. So you're right. You go to the physician, you go to the top medical school, and they're going to give you, uh, and if you have a lot of money in your pocket, they're going to say, why don't we try an immunotherapy, like Keytruda, Optivo, or one of these kinds of things. Still based on the gene theory of cancer. If the gene theory is, is, is uh, uh, now undermined, then that really doesn't make any sense either. And that can turn on you too. That can also be a very deadly. And the other thing about, do you know about immunotherapies and these new things you hear about, CAR-T and all this kind of stuff? All right, these are the new things. Yeah, I mean, the basic concept, you know, they just basically attach it to something that'll, that'll use immune system to, to target the, the cell, you know, theoretically. But yeah, I understand that, you know, if, if, if the, the genes are different in every single cell in the cancer, it, it makes, you know, how do you know you biopsy the right cell even for that immune therapy? You yeah, know, it's but, kind of a... Well, they just give it to you anyway and get a load of this. The, the patients that do the best on immune therapies, could give me a nice $350,000, thank you. So 400,000, the new ones, maybe $700,000. Okay, get a load of this. The patients that do best on immune therapies are the ones that get the highest fever. So, and, they, and then they say, oh, we know it's working because the patient gets a really high fever from the immunotherapy. This is Kali's vaccine. He did it back in the early 1900s. If you give live bacteria to a cancer patient, they get massive fevers. And if they can survive the fever, there was a 90% chance the cancer went, went disappeared along with the fever. All you're, all you're doing, <laughs> this whole thing is absurd, man. It, it, it kind it kind of reminds me of, of you know potentially the the anti-inflammatory effects of certain statin drugs in, in you know reducing the risk of you know coronary disease, but that's a different topic. Let me uh, let me just because this is an observation that that I'd, I'd like you to comment on. You know, animals in the wild don't get cancer that often. You know, certainly in comparison to to to, to pets and and in certainly humans. Do you have any reason or rationale thought on why that may be? Well, I think they're eating their natural foods. And uh, not all of them get, there are some cancers that come up in certain animals when they're exposed to the same kinds of toxins that we're exposed to. So it's not, you know, most, most, you're, you, most of the time you're absolutely right. I mean, but if these animals are in a toxic, you know, love canal environment, they're going to get cancer just like, like we do. And, you know, the, here's an interesting thing. The gorilla, uh, the chimpanzee is 98, 98.5% uh, genetically identical to us. Right. And, um, uh, uh, there's cancer is not epidemic in chimps, but they have their same genetic. So you, when you go when you go in the wild and look at what chimps eat, 
and you go to the zoo, you know, they're they're basically hanging around eating a bunch of plants or whatever the hell they eat in the wild. You know, when was the last time you went to the zoo and saw the chimp, you know, smoking cigarettes, eating a pizza? You know, um, yeah, I'll look at the big pizza that chimp is eating with all the mushroom, all the meat on top of it, you know, and uh, you know, smoking cigarettes and, and, and eating unnatural foods. Don't forget, we engineered our food. We don't give the foods that we eat to the chimp. <laughs> he, he get, his cancer rate is extremely low. Let's let's put the chimp. Let's do a nice controlled experiment because you know chimps like to drink beer. If you give it to them, they like it. They'll smoke cigarettes. They'll they'll do all these kinds of things if you allow them to do that. Oh, that's cruel and inhuman. Well, we do it to ourselves. Nobody seems to be concerned about it. <laughs> but uh, that, but who's going to do that experiment, right? Oh, we're going to take a bunch of chimps and give them a human diet for twenty years. They'll all be demented and cancer, <laughs> type two diabetes. <laughs> I mean, so we put ourselves in those environments. We put ourselves in those risk situations. But you're absolutely right. The cancer in the wild is very much less than it is uh, uh, in, in domesticated dogs. The poor dogs are getting hammered by cancer as well. They're eating the same crap we're eating. So, I mean, it's just, you know, you can put it all together. It becomes very clear. Yeah, you know, the one thing I always think about too with that, especially when you start seeing some of the price tags on some of these procedures and things that are, um, you know, just you know enough to put anyone like out of commission even if they do survive with the treatment uh yeah. from a financial standpoint is like the insurance companies like why are they not or are they are are they helpful in this search to kind of essentially put forward an option that you're just rearranging your grocery list so you're not really acquiring this huge massive cost of you know i thought so that you're exactly right. I thought I thought the same thing until I realized the way the insurance companies make money too. You know, they make big money on these cancer things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they what they do is they is is they make um, uh, they increase their copay, so uh, the patient's copay goes up, especially for the newer stuff. And uh, there's a new form of toxicity. We have a paper that's out um, uh, in cancer. You know, your hair falls out, you bleed from all orifices, you get nausea, vomiting, fatigue, diarrhea. And those are all considered adverse effects of the treatments. But now we have a new adverse effect that's called financial toxicity, which involves bankruptcy, marriage dissolution, and death from suicide and these kinds of things. Because the patients get so de- despondent and not being able to pay their bills, they, 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 they die, they, they go back. I mean, it destroys marriages, it destroys families. This is immoral, okay? This is, now we're dealing with a moral issue here. And I call them out at the, my, my talk at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Who are these despicable people that would do that to another human being? Take advantage of somebody who has a, a life-threatening disease and suck every, every, every molecule of money out of that guy. And then he dies. And then, and then you turn the bill over to the surviving, the surviving members of the family? I mean, this is nuts. You know, it's, if you bought a car and you drove it down the street and the engine blew up, you, you, would, you, would, you, wouldn't pay for the, you wouldn't pay for the damn car. Give me my money back. If that if that person doesn't survive Katruda, I want my three hundred thousand dollars back. You know, people aren't standing up to these guys. Give me my money back. If it doesn't work and I'm dead in three months, I want my money back. You know, I mean, give me a break. This is ridiculous. It's a moral issue. You, it's just so this cancer is layered with so much crap. It's it's unbelievable. And and you're trying to make a difference in somebody's life and and somebody's making a million dollars on on your sick sick body. I mean, this is ridiculous. It's, it's so despicable in every way you can look at this disease. So uh, you're right. Financial toxicity is a new form of toxicity. You need to know about that. 
Yeah, I know when I was, uh, you know, when we look at uh, things that are profitable for uh, medical centers, you know, we looked at interventional cardiology, some of the uh, surgical subspecialties like orthopedics, which I was in, and then oncology is actually very lucrative. And it's kind of interesting you see, you know, with these chemo centers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's it's kind of tough not to be jaded about some of this stuff. And the fact well, that... I've been, nobody would mind it if it worked, all right? Um, nobody would mind it. Uh, if if it had a success rate, the problem the problem is is that the success rate is so abysmally poor, and people say, "Oh no, we made major advances." Look at the death rate. The rate of increase in dead people from cancer from 2013 to 2018 is almost twice the population increase now. I mean, we're dying. People are dying from cancer, and the numbers are astonishing. As I said, in this country, 1,658 people a day, every day, every single day. And this never goes away. It just gets worse all the time. So, and we're spending all this money for research that has very little relevance to the guy dying in the clinic. And everybody's making a fortune on this poor guy. So people say, well, what, what good is okay, it? So, it's so ironic. It's so terrible to think. What is the, pur- the purpose of the cancer patients is to support a massive industry. His, he should know that his disease as bad as it is for him, he needs to know that his disease is keeping many people employed in this country so they can enjoy their life based on his sickness. So your purpose of having cancer is to keep someone else alive and healthy. It's absurd. These are absurdities, right? You shouldn't have to do this. And we're coming along with metabolic therapy, which is extremely inexpensive, and it doesn't hurt you, and can possibly give you a better quality of life and, and, and overall survival increase and you're attacked like you're some uh, nutcase from coming from another planet, you know. So, um, so this is the this is the the tragedy that you're dealing with here. This is a tragic. As I said, this will be in my lectures. I said this will this cancer thing will be recognized as the single greatest tragedy in the history of medicine. It's just when they come back to realize how easy it was to manage and what it requires in the end, and then you say what we did in the 20th and 21st century to these poor thousands and millions of people what we did to these poor souls you're going to come back and you're going to say what a tr- this was got to be the worst thing that humankind in the history of medicine could have ever done and this is and i'm telling you it's happening it's, and it's it's getting worse in all countries every country on the on the planet is increasing cancer and they do the same stupid things irradiate poison surgical mutilation irradiate poison surgical mutilation now we have immunotherapies but thank you that's going to be four hundred thousand dollars who the hell can afford that you know, I mean, give me a break. And these people, it's based on the gene theory. And if the gene theory is incorrect, why are you doing this? <laughs> so, <laughs> let, let me just, because we kind of touched on, you know, the, the press pulse or what you call a metabolic theory. Can we just maybe just hypothetically walk, say say you have a, you know, a 48-year-old female that's diagnosed with, you know, relatively early stage breast cancer. How would a metabolic approach look well, in that particular patient? What, what would yeah, their well, therapy look like? I, Let's, let's look at the way we diagnose. First, we don't want to stick the tumor with anything, okay? Person comes in, they got a lump, or they have bleeding from the colon, or uh, you, have, you have some indication, but based on the physiology of the individual, hey, there's something wrong here. I, I have a headache, I have a seizure. You know, let's do some non-invasive evaluations first. Um, okay, there's a, a, a probability you have a mass based on MRI, PET scanning, or something like this, okay, which is non, non-invasive. Okay, um, we're going to assume that that is a metast- or aggressive tumor. Just make the assumption that it is. Not, not, not that we need to know, but let's, let's use metabolic therapy 
to uh, shrink that tumor down. Because if we take away glucose and we had a low, a low dose of a glutamine inhibitor and you start to see resolution of that, of that lump or that particular situation or it gets much, much better and very tightly regulated, very definable. Um, now, and if it's in a singular location and not, not anywhere else, we can go in and we can debulk with surgery. But we would have done a metabolic approach up, for, up front for several weeks, maybe longer, depending how the patient is, is doing. Why go after the tumor if the patient is doing really well and the tumor is shrinking based on non-invasive te- 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 strategy? We have plenty of these things. And then we make a decision at some point, like Pablo Kelly did. After almost two years, he decided to have his tumor debulked. Well, 90, 85% of people don't even live two years. To, to make a decision, now my tumor should be debulked. They're dead in 12 to, to 14 months, right? So, so this is what you do. So it's a very much log- a more logical strategy to uh, managing the cancer. I would say within three to four months, you would know whether the metabolic approach is shrinking the tumor. It never gets worse. If you target glucose and glutamine, the tumor cells start to die. And if you've never poked them and stabbed them, they really die nice. So you don't you don't go after so then you po what they do now is we're going to make a diagnosis we're going to give you a needle biopsy, and then oh you have metastatic cancer, and and uh, or you don't and that's the other thing oh no this looks like a benign tumor but the very fact that you stabbed it you met you re- increased the risk for metastasis so by looking at it you've changed it it's called observer effect you know it's like the you know Heidenberg uncertainty principle you know the the you, you've changed it by looking at it. So, so this is a very clear strategy. We wrote a big paper on this, the Press-Pulse concept of how to deal with this. All you have to do is have some physicians that understand the concepts and say, I can do this. I know how to do this. Let's try it and see what happens. But, you know, the problem is the standard of care is written in granite, and you can't change the standard of care because the American Medical Association dictates how you treat cancer patients. So the very, very practitioners are prevented from doing what I just said. They think it's unconscionable not to upfront up treat the patient as soon as possible. They say early, early intervention cures cancer. Yeah, but so does early intervention too aggressively can spread it as well. So you have to be able to shrink it first, take it out, and I can guarantee, I, don't, I can't be 100%, I don't know, but I can certainly predict that the survival rates are going to be dramatically increased and there'll be a quality of life issue that goes along with it. Now, if I were sitting here in front of a medical board, I would be getting... I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to talk about it because you're threatening a system that's been entrenched in the, in the, in the, in the medical schools for decades. And you're asking us to change the way we're doing things. And I'm saying, are you interested in keeping people alive or are you interested in something other than that? And that's what they have to ask themselves. What, uh, do we have any good data in animals yet on this, on this uh, press pulse type of thing that we can at least start to say, look, it's working in, in these guys. Then maybe we can, do some human trials. Yeah, well, we have a couple of papers that we've uh, shown that we could increase overall survival um, and um, appear quality of life because you can see when the animal is sick. But we haven't cured anything yet. Um, yet. And I want to make sure, I want to say yet. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to, I don't want to say we can, you know, I've offered my students motivate incentives if they could keep these mice alive for 100 days. Um you know, and I would consider because the, the animal dies in 15 days after the, the tumor is implanted, 15 to 20 days. And I would say that if you could keep them alive for 100 days, you, I would consider that. I don't know if it's a cure, but I would certainly say it's massively longer than than he would have ever lived without the therapy. Um, so uh, humans seem to do. 
I think, do much, much better than the mice because they have a slower meta metabolic rate. We're keeping people alive generally longer. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's going to take so many changes at so many levels to implement metabolic therapy. But I think, I think we have on our side the fact that there's a couple of facts. Number one, people know they don't want to do toxic radiation and chemo. They don't like it. They don't, if there was anything else they could do, they would try to do it. Uh, people want to live, bottom line. Uh, they want to live. They know that these immunotherapies are not turning out to be uh, as good as people say. They're starting to w w wise up to the fact that radiation and chemo um, put them at risk for, for, for potential death and suffering. So I think, I think things are changing. But now you have to realize, before we came along with metabolic therapy, there was really nothing else. I mean, they had no choice. There was nothing else that could be offered. They have something, there's a new thing that could be offered if they're told about it, not eye rolling, shaking the heads, uh, telling you to leave the office, none of these kinds of things. You know, I have a lot of, a lot, I have a number of physicians who contact me, physicians, asking if they can do, they have cancer and they want to do metabolic therapy. They don't want chemo and radiation themselves. They want to do, because they know it doesn't work. So they're going to put themselves at risk for all kinds of other ailments. They don't want that. Give me something that is there's something. And I have the biology to support what I'm saying. So it's based on hard science. It's based on Warburg's theory of cancer. It's based on a lot of ev hard evidence. So I'm not, you know, blowing smoke through 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 my ass. This stuff is is supported by hard science. Their approach is not supported by hard science. So that's the difference. We see that uh, more a little bit more people are using. I don't even call it metabolic therapy, but certainly with diet, yeah. you're starting to accept that as an adjuvant therapy. You know, they'll yeah. say, well, right. we'll put you on a ketogenic diet and run you run you through the normal routine. Can you comment on the efficacy of that? Well, this is the whole thing. Um, when you do clinical trials, people, you're going to see a lot of them on, on, on clinicaltrials.gov, which is the website that shows all the clinical trials. And there's a whole bunch of ketogenic diet, dietary therapies on on the thing. So they have standard of care as one group. And then standard of care plus ketogenic diet is the second group, right? So where is the missing? The missing control group, you're missing a major group there. That is the ketogenic diet metabolic therapy without standard of care. See, so that group is never allowed to be present. Never so far in any clinical trial have I seen they're missing the critical control group. And that makes the, that skews the data. Well, ketogenic diet may work a little bit when you give someone a radiation and poison. May happen. May. Well, why don't we get rid of the radiation and poison and see how, how well it works? And then what's going to happen if it works better? Oh, my God, that the whole foundation of the field will shake to the core. I mean, tell me I can get a metabolic therapy in there that gives me a better chance of survival than standard of care. Well, the whole medical establishment's based on the standard of care that's written in granite. So you got to change the standard of care. Be flexible. When we went overseas to uh, to uh, Egypt and treated our patient there, we postponed the radiation and chemo uh, off for three months. And he lived, the poor guy lived 30 months. And it appears that he passed away um, from radiation necrotic damage to the brain. So if we didn't irradiate the guy, he could still be alive. We're not 100% sure, but it looks like, why did we do that in the first place? They wanted to irradiate the guy when he was doing, we're very healthy and the tumor was shrinking and they forced that poor guy to be radiated because it's part of the standard of care. And that's what I'm saying. We're, we're, I think we're killing a lot of these people by forcing them to do things that put their, their lives at risk. If I took a normal person off the street, you know, enjoying a, a soda on the corner, 
hey, let me go down. Let me take you down to Dana-Farber and give you the standard of care. And there's nothing wrong with you. We just want to see how it works on you. How, how what's the probability this guy's going to be alive in five years? Just taking a normal guy and doing that to him, much less a cancer person. You know, nobody, we, well, that's another control group. Let's radiate and poison some normal guy to see how it's <laughs> right. So, <laughs> you know, the absurdity of this field is just beyond my comprehension. So and it's only only because we understand the biology that I'm able to speak like this. Are you getting like when you described like the the missing group from that ex, that experiment being the the stand the the going through the the protocol without the radiation and stuff like that? Are you getting a lot of testimonials of people who have essentially just said screw it, I'm going to do this, and then like uh, you know I'm I'm sure the backlash would just be like oh these are all just a bunch of n equals one experiments, you know any very powerful n equal one. Mm-hmm. What we have. We have, listen, what we have is we have thousands of experiments done all over the world on brain cancer. And every survival study is exactly the same. Majority of people are dead within two years, right? And almost all are dead in three, and rarely do you get a five-year survivor. And that's repeated over and over again. Then you take a guy like Pablo Kelly, no radiation, no chemo, no surgery. He's alive four years, right? And surgery after two years. Oh, he's an anecdotal N of one. Are you shitting me? What do you think the probability of him surviving that long? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I want to do what Pablo did. <laughs> yeah. Are, if I do what you do, I'm going to be dead for sure. Are there a yeah. lot of other Pablos out there that are starting there to are, pop up now? Yeah. Or? yeah, yeah, there are. Allison Gannett, she has a website, How I Survived Brain Cancer with the Keto. Uh, Andrew Scarborough. Uh, there's a couple more out there. I think, I think if you avoid radiation, uh, you can survive. Uh, in my in my mind, I think if you avoid radiation to the brain for brain cancer, I think you can survive much longer. Um, and I say much longer. What does that mean? Twice, maybe twice to three times. So instead of being dead in 12 or 15 months, you might be you might survive to uh, 35, 40, 48 months. In other words, four years. And um, oh, well, that's impossible. Well, Pablo's out there. What, what are you saying? And then say he never had GBM. So after two years, they took his tumor out. And they said, yes, Pablo, you have GBM. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, so they documented the fact that he did have it histologically. I'd like to write him up, actually, but um, as a public, as a, as a case report. So if Pablo, you know, it's like the first guy, what about the first guy that, tri- that proved the Earth wasn't flat? He, got, he came around, right, Magellan, those guys? So we got, Pablo is like Magellan, for crying out loud. He, he decided to say, I'm going to see what, what happens if I don't take radiation chemo. And uh, he's a four-year survivor, and he's still doing well. So N of one... Okay, you figure out what the statistical probability of him being alive when almost everybody else is dead doing the standard of care <laughs> and a couple of other people. Let me just, because I know you, you speculated about what if humans got radiation and, and you know, chemotherapy treatment and, and, and they, they were otherwise healthy, they, they would be sick or they would die in, in certain amount of terms. Do we have any animal data that would corroborate that? I mean, surely when they're, when they're getting yes. these drugs approved to market, they can say, well, this, this is what radiation does to a monkey. This is what you know, whatever chemotherapeutic does to a monkey in absence of disease. Do we have any data on that? <laughs> yeah, we do. I, my data, I killed, I gave my, the first time I gave mouse cisplatin, I never saw anything die so fast in my life. I mean, his eyeballs like bust out of his head. And I said to myself, we're giving that to people, you know, and t- t- uh, temozolamide and, and this other kind of stuff. And then some of the veterinarians can't use the drugs we're giving to humans for cancer because they call it animal cruelty. You know, the dog is crapping, vomiting, and the dog dies from the, from the, if we can't treat animals with the same drugs we're treating humans because it's cruel and unhuman to the animal. So what does that tell you? 
you know, uh, it's okay for the human, but it's not good. It's not good for your schnauzer. So, um, you, you know, the, the whole thing is, is upside down. You can't. So yes, the answer, the answer is yes. If you want to kill your, if you want to kill your dog quick, give it a chemo. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, and they, you know, look at our, look at our YouTube video with the dog with the big tumor on his face. When the when they say we're going to irradiate chemo and all this, the dog will live seven months, be very sick, you know, five months. She said no, no radiation, no chemo, just change the diet, and the tumor's gone. The dog is still doing fine. So that was, you know, the dog's out now for what is it, twenty twenty fourteen, something like that, twenty fifteen. So the dog is three years beyond. He's alive three years beyond, and he's doing fine, no tumor, nothing. So it can happen, um, but we are so locked into this radiation and chemo, it's a hard thing to break. Let me let me just. Uh, you've been so gracious with your time. I'm just gonna ask you one more topic. I, I have um, a short period. The uh, you know when we talk about restricting glucose in particular, do you feel that it is a caloric restriction? Is it a, is it a macronutrient comp- composition of the diet, or is it a combination of both? What's the best way to, you know, if you're going to do the metabolic therapy, at least from from the dietary standpoint, how do you how do you employ that? Yeah, yes, yeah, so, no, it's very extremely important, uh, extremely important question. You know, we can only do calorie restriction for a short period of time, water-only therapeutic fasting. I mean, our bodies, humans are built to starve. But you're right. At some point, we're going to have to introduce a diet uh, that's going to allow our normal cells to remain healthy while we keep pressure on the tumor cells. Um, And this is the biggest problem I think we have right now is called the compliance issue. It's very hard for people. And that's what the, the the, the, the Hungarian group that I spoke with, the issue is compliance. And how you make that person stay compliant so that we can kill the tumor cells. Um, but you're absolutely right, Sean. I, I think I think we need to know more uh, about how to maintain therapeutic ketosis in a in a less stressful state. And as I said in our press pulse paper, um, we also have um, what we call um, physiological uh, management. Uh, we call stress reduction. So stress reduction. A lot of people are stressed out when they have cancer. So corticoids, glucocorticoids go up, which is a stress response. So we use stress management, yoga, music therapy, uh, whatever exercise, uh, whatever can lower the person's stress will give us a better chance at managing the disease with, with, a, with a well-balanced keto diet um, and then drugs that work synergistically together with the, with the dietary change that this person has. It's going to be a global body approach to managing the cancer growth, right? It can't be just, you know, treating the spot, you know, treating the lump. This whole thing has to be a, tradi- a whole body approach because the body is in, out of balance when you have the cancer. Your body is already metabolically out of balance because if, you, if it weren't out of balance, you wouldn't have the cancer in the first place. So, so bringing your body back into a new homeostatic state is going to require uh, a radical shift in, in the whole physiology of your body, but you want to do it so it doesn't create dropping your hair, your hair. People, people, people with bald head, anybody with a bald head is mistreated. Nobody should have a bald head when they have cancer. We can get rid of those tumors without having hair loss and without having nausea and vomiting to some degree. And when you make a radical change, sometimes you do feel a little nauseous, but it's usually transient. It doesn't last for a long time like the chemo does. So I think it's a learning procedure on how to bring your whole body back into a new homeostatic state while specifically targeting and degrading slowly this tumor, not radical surgery and radiation, all this stuff. I think we can get rid of this cancer much, much more effectively, much more strategically, much less with much less toxicity 
if we use, if we use metabolic therapy as an alternative. Not as a complement. I don't want to say we can't do it completely complementary. Maybe in a certain case, a radiation might be might be okay. Um, maybe a, a chemo drug at a certain point might be okay. Maybe an immunotherapy at the very end stages of the disease. Like after you go to the dentist, the last thing they do is clean your teeth. The last thing you do is use a specific immunotherapy to kill off a few survivors. But you don't use it as an upfront approach because it's not working. It won't work for the majority of people. It's overly expensive, and it's never going to be the, 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 the new standard of care. I can tell you that right now. Where, where, for people who want to learn more about this, more about your work, uh, perhaps contribute or help, uh, where can people go to, to sort of, you know, you know, either help or find out more? Well, uh, I think Travis Christofferson's book is an excellent book, uh, Tripping Over the Truth. He's, he's done a very good job. He also has a private foundation that has funded us. So many people donate money to Travis Christofferson's foundation. And that money goes to support metabolic therapy for cancer. So um, we're getting more interest on the private uh, foundations like CrossFit. Greg Glassman, the president of CrossFit, is a big fan of what we do. So he recognizes that CrossFit health, metabolic therapy will be a, an important component for CrossFit health, which brings exercise, diet therapies, all this kind of thing together to prevent, mostly for prevention of cancer, but also for the treatment. You can use this as well. So I, I think... I think there are certain groups that are coming to the realization that the path we are on is not a good one. It hasn't it hasn't given us what we thought we should have. We need to make we need to make a change, and the change that we're talking about requires funding, and it requires a, a new knowledge base, and it requires it requires people understanding what I'm saying. Um, and and a lot of this, uh, Miriam Kalamian's book Keto for Cancer. Uh, there's going to be a new book coming out. Um, Busting Breast Cancer by Dr. Susan Wadia Elves for females on the breast cancer thing, all based now on metabolic therapy, how you prevent and treat breast cancer using metabolic therapy. I think it's just going to be, and if the people want this, the physicians are going to have to make a change because they're your consumers. So if everybody goes into the physician and the physician shakes his head and tells them to leave and all this, there's going to be a new centers that are going to open up that are going to service these people who want metabolic therapy. So eventually it's going to change. It has to change because the system that we're on is a failed system and it's not working for the majority of people. So it has to change. And the change that we're offering is based on hard science. It's not toxic. It's based on a, on a, on a hundred years of scientific research that's been shown. And we know that we'll get a better, we'll get much better re resolution and much better uh, uh, overall survival when we, when we approach it with a, as a metabolic therapy. Just, just have to change. It's hard for make people to make change. But I tell you, people want to live, they don't want to be poisoned, they don't want to be irradiated, and they want to come out of this looking better than when they started. And that's what I think I think metabolic therapy will eventually be able to offer. Well, Dr. Seyfried, it's, it's wonderful having you on. Um, you know, maybe we can get, maybe uh, down the road, we can get you back on and hopefully we can find uh, the field has advanced significantly, you know, over the, over the X period of time and we can talk about some more stuff. Uh, and maybe some of the more specific stuff you're doing, because it's, it's truly, I think, you know, something that needs to get out there. It's truly sort of, you know, I would say groundbreaking, but it's 100 years old. So, <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, you know, it's 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 something that I think we just we just need to get more more eyes on this stuff. And so the more more yeah, people well, you get guys out here and do this. You know, your, your job is to spread the word. And um, and that's and that's and that's a, a very important, important role. Okay, because the more and more people that hear about this, 
the more the physicians and the pro and the, they're going to have to change so that they can service the people. And you're you if you tell people about what you've heard, and uh, you know, as I said, right now not everybody survives because we're not we haven't put the whole package together. Once we do that, I think we're going to get much better results. So your job is very important to do this to get the message out. And also, yeah, I keep. I want people to challenge this. I, I don't want people to simply roll over and accept it. You asked very, very important questions. I, I think the kinds of questions that you've asked both of you guys are really important. Those are the kinds of questions that most people would have. And I think by asking those important questions and getting the answers that I give uh, that seem reasonable, and then people go back and think more about other questions, and they come back and ask me this. And you know, I try to do the best we can at answering all of these questions. And if we can answer the majority of questions, maybe we are on the right right path here, you know. And that's and that's how it get the, that's how it gets started. Yeah, and I think like especially nowadays when like everyone pretty much knows or is related to or has themselves had cancer, and cancer is something that is basically in everyone's life in some shape or form. It's like those questions eventually have to get asked just out of necessity, and it seems like we're kind of getting to that breaking point. Yeah, as they call it, a tipping the tipping point, the point at which there's got to be a, a massive outcry to develop better immune, uh, metabolic therapy, and I think that point is coming. Um, it has to come. It has to come. We cannot continue the way we're doing. We can't let all those poor souls suffer and die like we're doing, and that's and that's what's happening today. Well, I think that's a great, uh, you know, a great reality and how to how to end this 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 topic for today. But thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Seyfried, and, and uh, we wish you good luck with uh, getting this research out there, getting more of it done, and impacting lives in a positive fashion. And like I've said many times, you know, it's kind of funny when we talk about what people believe, you know, and, and the point you make about us getting the message out. It's whatever they hear the most. And so the more people talking, yeah. you know, that's what's going to get the exposure. That's where the truth. That's where the truth becomes. We see it in politics and religion and anything else. Whoever has the most micro megaphones. <laughs> that's yeah. the answer that wins. And right yeah. now, the megaphones are paid for by, you know, these these big, uh, you know, pro companies that, that stand a profit from it. So I think we have to do, do what well, we can. Well, as they say, as they always say, um, in the end, truth wins. You know, so uh, and that's and that's what I think is going to happen. Well, listen, I'll let you guys go. I've got a meeting here, and um, uh, thanks for the interview. And I hope it uh, it has some impact on your. On your on your followers, well, I think so. I think so. They're going to definitely enjoy this, and so I think we'll we'll probably have this up, you know, fairly soon. I know Zach will put it up for, you know, part of our part of our followers probably today or tomorrow, and then uh, and then now, where, 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 where do you put it up? Where, where, where? It'll go up on Patreon today, so then people who are on our Patreon page will get access to it right away, and then in about two weeks it'll be available like anywhere podcasts are found. So. If, Anyone would search Human Performance Outliers podcast, uh, you know, it would pop up on whatever podcast platform they listen to. And I can certainly send you some links, too, with some of the more popular ones that if you want to share them and um, send them out to people that are interested, we could do that as well. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, because we, we're, we're getting about 100,000 downloads a month now, so we're growing pretty rapidly, and so our yeah. audience is getting bigger and bigger, and so I think uh, this will be impactful for sure. And uh uh, again, I think it's a great message to get out there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. I, I've got to run now. And, and right. Have a nice rest of the day. Take care. Thanks, Thanks again.
Hey folks, uh, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. ButcherBox uh, is a subscription plan uh, that will send you meat uh, upon your subscription. So it's a real kind of hassle-free, don't have to go to the grocery store type of approach that gets you high quality meat right to your door. Uh, Sean's been using ButcherBox for a while. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the, on the, uh, in the sous vide and then reverse searing, or then searing it up in a cast-iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store, this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome. Yeah. And folks, if you want to support the show, go over to ButcherBox, get yourself an order of some high quality meat and type in the promo code HPO and you'll get a discount as well. Hey folks, thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me, at ZBitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean, at SBakerMD. That's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me, at ZachBitter. That's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at SeanBaker1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.